the National Archives podcast series, The Metropolitan Police, an introduction to records of service, 1829 to 1958, presented by Chris Heather. Okay, thank you all for coming. I'm Chris Heather and I work here at the National Archives in the Advice and Records Knowledge Department and within that the Modern Domestic Team. And we tend to uh, deal with records from the Home Office, Prison Commission, Ministry of Health, those sort of departments of government. And today we're going to look at records of the Metropolitan Police. It's not a heavy talk, it's just a kind of introduction to the records of the Metropolitan Police and a brief look at what was in place before they came into existence. Today there are um, 39 English police forces in Britain. There are eight Scottish police forces and there are four Welsh ones. But at one point in this country there was only one police force which started on the 29th of September 1829. But what would happen on the 28th of September 1829 if you had your handkerchief stolen or your sheep stolen, what would you do if there were no police? And what would you do before 1829? Well, I just want to briefly have a look at what was in place before the Metropolitan Police started. <coughs> I expect you've all heard of the term breach of the peace. Well, in those days and the same today, if you commit a crime, you're, you're breaking the the monarch's peace or the king's or queen's peace. Your crime is actually committed against the monarch's law of the land. So it's the monarch, really, who should be judging you, weighing up the pros and cons and making you pay for your crime. Now obviously the queen or the king can't attend every court case, so in the year 1327 an act was introduced that required good and lawful men to be appointed in every county in the land to guard the peace and these were initially called Knights of the Peace, appointed in each county by the Crown, and the monarch's judgment was in practice delegated to them. A bit later, in 1361, in the reign of Edward III, these men became known as Justices of the Peace, or JPs. I'll call them JPs from now on, because it's quicker. A JP could be a lay person, not necessarily trained in law, but they had to be trustworthy, um, and um, relied upon to make a fair decision in any particular case. So before 1829, the law relied upon ordinary people to, to report crimes to these JPs, and it was through them that the law was administered. JPs didn't go out on patrol like policemen, and they weren't involved in actually catching criminals as such. Um, this job was carried, carried out by constables. Parish constables. Each parish had at least one constable, and they were the eyes and ears of the JP. They inquired into offences, served summonses, executed warrants, took charge of prisoners and prosecuted them, and in general obeyed the orders of the JP. JPs could recruit more constables if need be. He could just uh, pick on reliable people that he knew and swear them in as constables particularly during times of civil disturbances or riots or if he anticipated any need for extra support, he could swear them in. So constables weren't paid and they were part-time and they were usually sort of well-established property owners uh, from the, the local area, from that parish. Um, and they would serve 
usually on a kind of rotor system for a year or so, taking turns at being the constable. It was their role to provide regular reports to court on felons and nuisances. Since they were property owners, it was in their own interest to protect property from criminals. It was the constable that you would go to if you became a victim of crime. Now, underneath them, they had watchmen. Not very flattering images of watchmen there. But uh, the watchmen were supervised by the constables. Watchmen were actually paid the money coming from local ratepayers, but despite this, watchmen were not very effective in fighting crime. London itself was divided into 24 wards, and each ward had six watchmen in it. They were also called Charlies because they were introduced during the reign of Charles II. Now, Charlies spent very little time actually patrolling. Um, instead, they would spend their time in little sentry boxes or watch boxes, uh, sleeping, going to pubs and playing cards. Um, they just sort of sat there and waited for crimes to be reported to them. They had a very bad reputation amongst the general public and some of them took bribes or colluded with criminals. So in practice it was the parish constables who were the main body responsible for catching criminals. There's a cartoon here showing some, uh, the lack of respect shown to Charlie's. This is from 1821 and here you can see some middle class revellers teasing a Charlie, knocking over his watch box which he'd probably been sleeping in. Um, and just generally mucking around. They didn't really respect them at all. And the next slide is a mock advertisement from the same year, 1821, um, pretending to sort of advertise for watchmen. I'll just read through it. It says, Wanted 100,000 men for London watchmen. None need apply for this lucrative posi position without being the age of 60, 70, 80 or 90 years blind with one eye and seeing very little with the other, crippled in one or both legs, deaf as a post, with an asthmatical cough that tears them to pieces, whose speed will keep pace with a snail and the strength of whose arm would not be able to arrest an old washerwoman woman of four score returned from a hard day's fag at the wash tub. So you can see the respect that they uh, got from the general public there. Generally speaking, anyone who witnessed a crime could and should have reported it. It was a public responsibility and duty to report a crime. When financial rewards for information leading to the conviction of offenders were offered, people would try to find criminals and bring them in, either to claim the reward or to strike a deal between the victim and the perpetrator of the crime. And there were professional thief-takers, private individuals who operated like bounty hunters, working for rewards. Many, however, were in league with thieves themselves. And probably the most famous one is Jonathan Wilde, who lived from 1683 to 1725. He styled himself the thief-taker-general of Great Britain and Ireland. He was a criminal mastermind overseeing gangs of men who would steal valuables, which he would then recover for a fee or reward from the victim. When one of his thieves outlived his usefulness, he would turn him in to the JPs in return for a reward. After sending 60 men to the gallows, Wilde was unmasked and hanged at Tyburn in 1725. This slide shows Jonathan Wilde's own personal emblem on this side here. 
He's wearing a judge's cloth cap and holding a mace, a symbol of justice. He distributed copies of this portrait to Londoners as a public relations ploy, much in the same way that Al Capone did in America, currying favour with the people. Ironically, it was also reproduced on tickets to his execution in 1725. In 1748, Henry Fielding became the chief magistrate at the Bow Street Court in London. This is the same Henry Fielding that wrote the novel Tom Jones. The following year, in 1749, he appointed eight Bow Street runners to work from his office. They were originally thief-takers and they wore no uniforms, but they had a formal attachment to the Bow Street magistrate's office and they were paid by the magistrate with funds from central government. They worked out of his office at number four, Bow Street. They served writs and they arrested offenders on the authority of the magistrate, going nationwide sometimes to catch offenders. Over time, they were expanded and divided into the horse patrol, the dismounted patrol, a night foot patrol and a day foot patrol. Sir John Fielding is the person who took over. That's Henry's brother or half-brother. And he had been blind since he was 19 years old. He became a chief magistrate at Bow Street in 1754, remaining in the job for 26 years until 1780. He became known as the Blind Beak of Bow Street, and it said he could recognise the voices of over 3,000 known criminals. John Fielding refined the Bow Street runners into the first truly effective law enforcement body for London. He later added a group of mounted men on horseback known as the Bow Street Horse Patrol, also called the Robin Redbreasts because of their red waistcoats. This next slide shows one of the documents that we hold here at the National Archives, a treasury document, and it includes his signature at the bottom. You can see it's a bit shaky there. That's because obviously he was blind, so he couldn't really see what he was writing. And in this, he's asking for, he's giving a report to the treasury on what he spent his money on that year, and he's hoping for the same amount next year. During the early 1800s, there were calls for a new police force from various quarters, including the Duke of Wellington. The wars with France were over, leading to increased unemployment, and the introduction of factories and new farming methods had led to an increase in riots, disturbances and crime. In 1828, Robert Peel, Home Secretary, showed that although the population in London had increased by 19% since 1811, crime had risen by 55%. So in April 1829, Peel submitted his Metropolis Police Improvement Bill to Parliament and on the 29th of September 1829, the Metropolitan Police was formed. The policemen were commonly known as Peelers or Bobbies after Robert Peel and the force was directly under his control as Home Secretary, which is why the surviving records are here at the National Archives amongst the Home Office papers. Records of other police forces across the country are either with the force concerned or at the relevant county record office. The first thousand of Peel's policemen started to patrol the streets of London wearing a smart uniform comprising blue tailcoats and top hats. The uniform was carefully chosen so as not to look like an army uniform. It wasn't red like the army's tunics and there were no helmets. The uniform intended to appear non-threatening to civilians. The following year their ranks tripled to 3,300 men and by 1849 there were 5,000. By 1899 there were 16,000 of these peelers, all issued with a pair of handcuffs 
a wooden rattle like the old football rattles, although they were replaced in the 1880s by whistles. They were also given a wooden truncheon, which they carried in a special pocket in the tail of their coat. They were issued with a thick collar designed to protect them against garrotting. Cutlasses were available for emergencies or dangerous beats, and inspectors and higher ranking officers were allowed to carry pistols as well. Women were not recruited until 1919, and their records are not included amongst those we have here at the National Archives. Some early records for women are held by the Metropolitan Police Historical Museum at New Scotland Yard. There were strict criteria for being a policeman. The first recruits had to be aged between 20 and 27, and be at least five foot seven tall. After a few years, the age limit went up to 35, and they had to be well-built, fit, and literate, with a fair knowledge of spelling, generally intelligent and of good character. They also had to be free of any bodily complaint, including flat feet, stiff joints, narrow chest, and facial deformities. As a result of these strict criteria, most of the early recruits to the police were from outside of London because the poor urban conditions of the capital often meant that the physical and mental standards of London men were not considered good enough. Most early recruits were from the home counties, 2.5% were Scottish and 6.5% were Irish. The main emphasis of their work was on the prevention of crime rather than investigating crimes that had already happened. Crime investigation was still carried out by the unpaid constables reporting back to the JPs. The new police force was introduced across the whole of London except for the city of London, the, the part right in the middle known as the Square Mile. Some of the magistrates in the City of London suggested that they should have their own police force as well, which might have meant the end for the Charlies. And here we can see a cartoon showing the old Charlies carrying a watch box as if it were a coffin, showing the death of the Charlies. But in practice, the Charlies carried on until around 1835. So how were the police regarded? You might expect the general public to be pleased and grateful for the protection that the new force offered. But in fact, the police were not popular at all. And we'll see that in the next few slides. Firstly, local government in London were expected to pay for the new police force out of the rates, like they did for the old watchmen. But watchmen were controlled by the local authority whereas the police commissioners reported to the Home Secretary. So people resented paying for something over which they had no control. Secondly, people were afraid of them. They thought the police might be a new military force introduced to clamp down on things. They would rather have had the old easy-going Charlies than what some considered a form of martial law. Thirdly, the new police were recruited from the working class and were expected to show authority over mainly working-class criminals. Consequently, they were seen as class traitors by some, and meanwhile, the middle class looked down on them and didn't trust them to protect their property. There were campaigns and petitions against the new police. Here you can see a poster against the new police. This is one from HO61, Home Office Metropolitan Police Correspondence, calling for the abolition of the new force. This dates from 1830, the year after the introduction of the Metropolitan Police. One section of it asks, why is the sword of justice placed in the hands of a military man? Unite in moving such a powerful force from the hands of government and let us institute a police system in the hands of people under parochial appointments. They wanted a police force, but they wanted it managed locally by 
local parish authority. The old watchmen were known for being drunk on duty and the new police suffered the same reputation. Drunkenness was very common in the police and here's a cartoon from May 1830 showing a policeman who is obviously drunk saying to a woman, come move on there, it's time you was in bed young woman, anyone with half an eye could see you were in liquor. The police here being shown as hypocritical and no better than those they have authority over. This cartoon shows the police as a brutal military force. This one is from 1832 and it shows the fears of the public that a French style political police force was being imposed upon them. As I mentioned earlier, the uh, Metropolitan Police had jurisdiction over the whole of London except for the City of London. This map shows the area covered, which started out as an area of seven miles radius from Charing Cross in 1829, and then ten years later it was extended to 15 miles radius from Charing Cross, including the whole of Middlesex and most parishes in Surrey, Hertfordshire, Essex and Kent that had parts not more than 15 miles from Charing Cross. So the Metropolitan Police were responsible for the whole of this area except for the little white bit in the middle, which is the City of London. And even today, the City of London has its own police force. All attempts to unite the two police forces have failed over the years. The City of London Police Force was set up in 1839 and their staff records are held at the Corporation of London Records Office in the Guildhall in London. At the same time, in 1839, the old constables were finally abolished. They were replaced in 1842 by plainclothes detectives within the police force and they eventually became the Criminal Investigation Department, the CID. Sir Robert Peel set out the structure and salaries of the new force in a written memorandum dated the 20th of July 1829. He thought it should have eight superintendents paid at £200 a year, 20 inspectors paid at £100 a year, 88 sergeants at three shillings and sixpence a day, and 895 constables paid at three shillings a day. By 1869, London was divided up into four districts, each of which had several divisions. For example, number four district included Lambeth, Southwark, Camberwell, Greenwich and Clapham. Each division had a superintendent in charge and under him were four inspectors and 16 sergeants. Later on, the Met Police became responsible for the Royal Dockyards Police and the military stations at Portsmouth, Chatham, Devonport, Pembroke, Woolwich and Rosyth. And the Bow Street Horse Patrol in 1836 and the Thames River Force were incorporated into the Met. So now I'm going to move on to the actual records that we hold here <coughs> for the police themselves. They're all records that are held here. I'm not going to talk about anything held elsewhere. Now, it's true to say that the Metropolitan Police records have not survived in their entirety. There are gaps in some collections and other collections are incomplete in other ways. There's a particularly bad period from 1856 to 1868 when pretty much nothing survives. But there is a good period between 1889 and 1909 for which there are several sets of records which survive and in which you should be able to find mention of your man. The staff records are always arranged by one of three things, name, warrant number or date. That's date of joining or date of leaving. The policeman's warrant number was issued to each man when he joined and it stayed with him throughout his service, unlike the army where a man can have several numbers during his time. 
So there are six main collections of staff records, and all of them will give you four things, these four things on the screen. They'll give you the name, the warrant number, the division, and the dates of appointment or removal from the force. It doesn't matter which set of records you look at, you should always get at least those four things. So the first set of records are known as the numerical registers. <coughs> They're held under reference MEPO, I'll call it MEPO, that's, that's what the Met Metropolitan Records are put under. That's the acronym. MEPO 4, pieces 31 and 32. There are only two of these volumes, and the entries are arranged in warrant number order. They were simply completed as policemen signed up, and they give you the warrant number, the name, the date of the appointment, the division to which they were attached, and their height. There is also a column for how they were removed from the force, which is usually that they had either died or resigned or were dismissed. And when you look down the list of men in this book, you can see that nearly all of them were dismissed for being drunk. <laughs> in fact, of the first 2,800 new policemen, only 600 managed to keep their jobs. Such a rapid turnover ca caused Mr. Charles Hebert, the first clothing contractor, to complain to the, the receiver about the extra cost involved in altering and reissuing so many uniforms. So it wasn't a very good start for the new police. The next document is the alphabetical register in HO65. It's just one document, there's only one of it. It's piece number 26. And it's in alphabetical order of surname, and it gives you the date of appointment, the warrant number, name, rank, date of promotion or reduction, and former warrant number if he was reappointed. It also tells you why he was removed from the force at the end of his service, which again is usually death, dismissal or resignation. Most of them, when you look down the list, are dismissed. The very first warrant number, number one, was issued to a man named William Atkinson, who was dismissed for being drunk on the 29th of September, the very first day of the new police force, <laughs> after having only been in the job for four hours. <laughs> and you can see the ones underneath, dismissed, dismissed, all the same, ditto. Thirdly, we have the registers of joiners, and these are on microfilm and they're in MEPO 4 still. They're easy to use, arranged in alphabetical order of name, and they cover the period from 1830 to 1857. Then there's a gap, and then they start again in 1878, going right up to 1933. They should give you the name, rank, warrant number, division, and dates of appointment and removal from the force. The earliest vol volumes also give you the names and addresses of referees, so if you're working on a family tree, you might find the man's father or brother listed as a referee. Fourthly, we've got attestation registers or ledgers, um, again in MEPO 4. These are arranged in warrant number order and they record the men actually signing up to join the police. So it's mostly lists of signatures in there. At the front of the volume, you get the oath that they would have sworn at the time of their signing. These ledgers also give you the division that they joined, by whom they were sworn, and a signature of the witness, which again could be another member of the family. Fifthly, we have certificates of service, still in MEPO 4, from piece 361 to 477. These include quite a lot of information on each person. They only survive for 21 years from 1889 to 1909, but they give you a physical description, date of birth, the trade that they were employed in before they joined the police, 
their marital status, residence, number of children, last employer, surgeon certificate, postings to divisions, promotions, demotions and cause of removal from the force. They're arranged by warrant number, so they were just completed as, as they were recruited, and they record the answers to questions that the recruiting officer would have put to the new recruit. So you've got the questions down the left and the answers down the right. The very last question is a strange one. It says, do you belong to an illegal secret society? <laughs> so whether they're going to say, yes, I do, or I'm sorry, I can't tell you, I'm not sure, but this one says no, anyway. Sixth are registers of leavers. <coughs> um, there are 13 volumes of these, and obviously they're arranged in date order, completed as and when people left the force. There are some name indexes at the front, so you don't have to wade through. But if you do know the date the person left, then you can go straight to it. They give you the division, the warrant number, the rank, the class, um, number of certificate granted, if not dismissed. They would get certificates according to their character. Number one would be excellent, number two would be very good, and so on. And you'll find abbreviations like RP, which is resignation permitted, and RR, which is required to resign. So kind of dismissed, really. Now, there are name indexes which can help you on your way through these records. There's an alphabetical index of Metropolitan Police Officers in seven volumes in the Research Inquiries Room, um, located next to the MEPO series in the class list. So if you find the MEPO section next to it, you'll find this alphabetical list of names. And it was compiled um, by combing through the correspondence and papers for the Metropolitan Police in series MEPO 2, picking up names of individual men and their warrant numbers. This information has been cross-referred to other sets of Met Police records in MEPO 4, MEPO 7 and the HO 64 ledger, and it will confirm basic details about any particular man, giving you his warrant number and will sometimes give you the document reference where the entry was found. There's also a separate name index, which is just a single volume, again amongst the red set, it's an index to police officers mentioned in the police orders from 1880 to 1889, held in MEPO 7, including all men that joined during this period. It's called Index to Officers Who Joined, 1880 to 1889. Police orders were like office notices, announcements of people leaving or joining or being promoted, and they can give you specific information on individual policemen. They comprise general and confidential notices and instructions on personnel matters including recruitment, promotions, transfers, awards, retirements and dismissals and other instructions or notices to be brought to the attention of all ranks. So that's what you get in MEPO 7. These records are not otherwise easy to use because there's no index to them apart from this binder. But if your man joined in the 1880s, this binder should give you at least the warrant number and if you've got the name and the warrant number, those are the keys that open the door to all the other sets of documents. So where should you start your search? This slide summarises your options as to where to start, depending on whether you have the warrant number already or not. If you do not have the warrant number, then you should start with the chronologically arranged documents listed on the left. If you do have the warrant number, then you can start with the numerically arranged collections on the right. Either way, you should find enough information to find your man in all the available documents, provided they survive. Now, there's a section on our website called Your Archives, and it's a user-compiled wiki, similar to Wikipedia, 
which is part, it's, it's part of a section on, on the National Archives website. And one volunteer has uploaded photographs of a lot of the documents that I've been speaking about. He's also provided transcripts of indexes for them, um, and he's made it a sort of shortcut into these records. That's just the beginning of it. Down below you get lists of the documents and you can click on them. Uh, some of them have been photographed and others haven't, and some of them have been indexed and others haven't. I think he's still working on it. So you could do that from home before you, before you got here. Pensions. Up until 1890, pensions were discretionary and police officers had no legal right to them. After the Police Pensions Act was passed, officers were entitled to claim a pension provided they had served 25 years. And they could claim a modified pension or a gratuity if they were discharged medically unfit. There are two main sources of, for pension records. The first is MEPO 5, General Correspondence and Papers of the Met Police Office of the Receiver, relating to financial matters between pieces 1 and 90. Um, and that covers from 1829 to 1907. But it's one of those collections of correspondence where you might find something about your man, but it's not arranged by name or anything useful. So it's something you wouldn't really start with, but it does include information on pensions. Better to start with MEPO 21, which are records of police pensioners, and they've been catalogued by name, at least for the first few years from 1852 to 1890. This means you can search the National Archives catalogue. Just type in the name of the person you're looking for, and if they received a pension between 1852 and 1890, their names should come up with the appropriate MEPO 21 reference. The records actually continue on until 1993, still in MEPO 21, but individual names have not been added to the catalogue yet. So for records after 1890, you simply choose the document that covers the date of retirement. You can then use the Register of Leavers to find out when your man left the force and then go into MEPO 21 for that date. The entries in the volume are arranged in order of pension number, which generally corresponds to the date of resignation, although in some instances this chronological order has not been strictly followed. The records themselves provide you with the date and place of birth, marital status, parents, next of kin, service details, and then from 1923, <coughs> They include details of a spouse. There are also documents concerning widows' pensions amongst um, MEPO 21 as well, and they're quite clearly marked as widows' pension papers in the catalogue. These papers are bound up in volumes, and you get one page for each person. This example is for a policeman named Christopher Hayes, who served over six years. It gives his name, rank, reason for discharge, and rate of pension. The documents are arranged in order of pension number, and this particular one shows that he received severe bodily injuries received in the execution of his duty. He left the force on the 22nd of June 1852, and his pension of £28 starts the following day, the 23rd of June 1852. On the back of each page, you get more information about the individual, including things like hair colour and eye colour, his complexion and particulars of service. This example includes details of his reason for discharge. If I enlarge this section, you can see that he was kicked by a prisoner, causing injury to the spermatic cord. So he was kicked in the groin. And on the last line, it tells you where he's intending to reside and draw his pension, which is Willie Lane. 
in terms of death. So if your man was actually killed while serving, you can find information on him in the returns of death while serving. This again is just one volume, Mepo 4, piece number 2, and it's arranged in date order from the introduction of the force to 1889. As I said, it's in date order, but if you don't know when your man died, then you can use Mepo 4488, not 448. That's a mistake, it should be 488 which is an alphabetical index to the returns of death while serving, and it also gives you the cause of death. PC Joseph Grantham became the first officer to be killed on duty at Somerstown, Houston, in 1830, when he was kicked in the head attempting to arrest a drunken man at a disturbance. So he should be the first one listed in that book. And finally, a brief word about the King's Police Medal. This award was introduced by King Edward VIII on the 7th of July 1909 for those who performed acts of exceptional courage and skill or who have exhibited conspicuous devotion to duty. Files on awards for the King's Police Medal from its introduction in 1909 can be found in HO45 under the heading Honours and a list of awards from 1909 to 1912 is given in MEPO 2 piece 1300. A register of officers under consideration for the award of the King's Police Medal from 1909 to 1951 is held under reference MEPO 22, piece number 2. And notifications of awards of this medal were um, published in Police Orders, that's MEPO 7 again, and the London Gazette, available online or in series ZJ1 here, on, partly on microfilm and partly originals here. Okay, thank you for listening. This event was recorded live on the 3rd of February 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.